As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. St. Francis of Assisi and Spiritual Poverty. A talk by Luke Strea at the 2018 Immaculata Mission School in Hobart, Tasmania. So like a few of the other speakers thus far, I'm going to start also with a prayer. Um, and this one, it comes from St. Francis himself. So this is his prayer before the crucifix, uh, also known as the prayer before the son Damiani crucifix. Most high, glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart. Give me true faith, certain hope, and perfect charity, sense and knowledge, Lord, that I may carry out your holy and true command. So um, it's said of St. Francis that um, sometimes when he would preach, he would get up, uh, and I guess he'd have lots of people waiting for him to, to get up, and he'd get up, and he'd say, well, I meditated a bit on what I was going to say, but I completely forgot what it was. Um, so he would then just perhaps just extol them in a couple of things and then give them a blessing because he was a deacon and, and go away. That's what he did. Um, you're not going to get that from me, though. Partially because I'm not a deacon, um, but also because I actually have to give this talk. How many here have heard of St. Francis of Assisi before? Um, and how many have heard of his story before? Okay, well, I'm probably going to just repeat a whole bunch of stuff. So I'll just quickly um, go over his life. I just want to start by repeating something that Tom said, the very first talk of this mission school, just to bring it back and and to have this in your mind. The Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. Now, St. Francis of Assisi isn't a saint because he was a pretty cool guy. St. Francis of Assisi is a saint because he lived that. He lived the knowledge of that, that the Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. He didn't simply live it as this knowledge that he received from a catechism class. He lived that as the, the knowledge that, that, that guides all of his actions. You know, he was deeply in love with Jesus Christ and knew that he was at the center of his life, that he was at the center of history, that God had become man and entered into his universe, you know, the universe of St. Francis and all the people around him, to save him. So St. Francis of Assisi came from a... Uh, a Wealthy, middle-class family, probably not that much different given that we live in such good conditions here in Australia um, than most of us here. He lived a fairly party lifestyle. He loved the party until one day he got sick. In that illness, he, um, something changed in him. He noticed that he didn't, the things around him that he used to really value, uh, the things around him that used to give him pleasure, just didn't quite have what it once had anymore. That didn't really change him that much, though. He just kind of noticed that. Uh, And so he did what any 13th century young man does when they want to prove themselves and get glory. He went off to fight a battle with another city. You don't really do that anymore, but um, that's what they did back then. Um, And on his way there, he um, obviously didn't get in the plane or the train and head there. They walked, um, so it took a long time. Uh, And so he had this vision um, of, of a big house, a giant mansion, full of armor and of weapons. Now, to a guy who's just about to go off and fight a battle, that's pretty sweet. You know, it's like, you know, I've got all this armor and all these weapons. You know, maybe this is about my future. And he, he came out of this, this vision and he realized that this vision wasn't about... Um, there's a couple of different sort of things on his life that kind of interpret this vision or how he reacted to this vision slightly differently. Um, but this vision wasn't... Um, wasn't about him becoming a great commander or a knight or anything like that, um, that there was something different to it. And just like how he, he lost his taste for, for the things of the world around him, he lost his taste for going off and killing people, thankfully. Um, and he decided to turn around and go home. Um, in, according to one sort of tradition about St. Francis, he had this, um, this voice um, which said to him something like, and the people who know more about this, because I'm super unqualified to give this talk, but more and know more about this um, than I could actually give the proper quote. But it was something like, um, Francis, um, who do you want to serve, the slave or the master? Really obvious, I'd want to serve the master. Who wants to serve the slave? And the voice, which presumably is Jesus, um, says to him, you know, well, why are you serving the slave? 
you know, why are you going off fighting these petty little battles um, when you could be serving the true master that is God? You know, as Tom said, the redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. It doesn't get much bigger than that. So St. Francis came back um, a changed man. Uh, he decided to, to go off. He's, his father was a merchant, and he, I guess, was participating in that business as well. So he went and took all the clothes that he had, uh, rode off to, to a merchant town and sold all his clothes and the horse, and I guess walked home. Um, and his father wasn't too happy about, about this, um, but St. Francis went to this little church that he loved called San Damiano, um, which is where the San Damiano crucifix comes from. It's, if you've been to Assisi, it's sort of just outside of Assisi. Um, he went there and he wanted to give all the money that he had um, to, to the priest there. And the priest was like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, um, I think I'm going to get in a bit of trouble. Like, you know, you sold all your stuff and you're now giving all this money to me. I think your dad's going to be a bit annoyed at me. So he said, thanks, but no thanks. And St. Francis didn't want the money, so he chucked it out the window. Uh, and he goes home and his dad, once, as I said, was not particularly impressed. So he locks him up, as any good father does. Um, <laughs> tries to sort of break his resolve and doesn't. Um, and so St. Francis is taken uh, to the bishop. It's a bit of an unusual situation where the bishop in Assisi was also kind of like the mayor. I don't know. It's sort of like he adjudicates over certain civil disputes. So he takes him to the bishop um, and says, you know, I'm suing my son. You know, he's, he's gone mad. Um, I'm taking all my possessions from him. So it's like the prodigal son in reverse. It's really weird. Um, he, he sort of wants all the stuff that St. Francis has, you know, to be returned to him. And so St. Francis says, sure. So he strips off completely and gives all his stuff back to his father and is standing there in the nude in the middle of Assisi. Um, and there's, there's this great, um, there's, if you ever go to St. Clair's Basilica, I think it is, there's um, all of Giotto's um, uh, frescoes and beautiful, but one of them has the, um, if, I don't know if most of you can see this, but one of them has St. Francis there like naked, like this, and then the bishop like this, <laughs> over with his robes, like sort of trying to cover him up. St. Francis then, I guess, lives this life of going to, going to San Damiano and there he, he receives... Um, uh, before the crucifix, uh, Jesus speaks to him and says, Francis, go and rebuild my church, which you can see is in ruin. And initially, uh, I think St. Francis took this quite literally because San Damiano Church was in ruin. Uh, so he goes and starts rebuilding that church. And then he rebuilds two other churches, including the Portuncula. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that'll do. Um, which, was, um, which was to become one of his favourite places um, and becomes a very central point uh, in, in the life of St. Francis and of his followers for the 800 years thereafter. So I guess this is the turning point in his life, um, of, of all those turning points, but, but one of the major points in his life is when he receives that message and he goes and basically lives this very simple life. He, he initially after taking all his clothes off, he then puts on clothes, um, a, a simple tunic. And then he realizes that's, that's really not enough. You know, so he removes that and, and puts on a simple, um, a simple cloth and, and a cord. Um, so usually you'd have a belt. Um, he thought that was too rich, so he just got a rope, basically, and put that around him. And that was good enough for him. He lived this life of, of prayer, of, of these this, his little church rebuilding projects, um, and of great poverty. And these guys started to notice him, like, what's up with this guy? Um, and so they thought his life was pretty attractive. Um, and so he started to gain some followers, uh, started out with a, with a few um, brothers. And he wasn't, you know, no, get away from me. I just want to live a life as a hermit. Um, he, he accepted them and, and they sort of went together. They went on little mission trips, a bit like the street evangelization, except they went from Italy to Spain. Uh, that's bit further than down the road in Hobart. Um, and interestingly, on their journey, they, they went out for a little while uh, and then they realised, oh, actually, no, this is not, not, not what we're meant to be doing right now. So they turned around and they all went to different parts. I think uh, two of them went to Spain, another two went up to, I don't know where, Germany or something, and another two went somewhere else. And they all got prompted by the Holy Spirit to all come back at exactly the same time, which was really good. Because uh, that could have been disastrous. You know, imagine, I, I've experienced what it's like uh, to be in Europe and not know where another person is and you're on a different plane and Jonathan knows all about this as well. And it's, it's really, it's really um, 
tense. Um, World Youth Day 2016. <laughs> so he continues to gain these, these brothers, uh, and he lives this life of poverty, of simplicity, of serving the poor. He'd initially served, uh, he went to these monks, and they didn't treat him very well. He had nothing, so he's like, well, I've got to eat. So he then moves on um, and starts serving in a, uh, in a leper colony and then sort of moves on from there as well. And so he lives, yeah, as I said, he lives this life of, of poverty, of simplicity, um, of, of preaching. Uh, he receives permission from the Pope to go and preach. I'm not going to explain, like, why do you need permission from the Pope to preach? That's a complicated medieval ecclesial law kind of thing that's for another time. Um, and that's the life that he lived, you know, going deeper and deeper. He wanted to conform himself to Christ because he'd fallen in love with Christ and he wanted to imitate him. There's a story about this, um, this, this friar who followed St. Francis and he would literally do everything St. Francis did. So St. Francis would go over and pick up a cup or something. This friar would also come over and pick up. He was a bit simple, this guy, but he'd come over and, and pick up a cup as well and like St. Francis would turn this way and this guy would turn this way. It's, it's amusing, but St. Francis was kind of doing that with Jesus. He wanted to, to conform his life completely to Christ, um, to the point that towards the end of his life, he, um, in this cave in Italy, it's coming up to Christmas, and he, he tells one of his brothers, go and fetch me a donkey and an ox. You know, I want to be able to live what Christ lived in the stable in Bethlehem. You know, and so they do. His brother gets him this this the, the donkey, and he, you know, he sets up this little um, this little scene there in the in the cave, and um, they celebrate mass. Um, and you know, it becomes such this big tradition that these days on our mantelpieces we now put together these little um, these little figurines, and we put the little wise men. That's that's where it actually came from. The nativity scene actually came from St. Francis doing that. This guy is. Probably the most, inf- this, is, this is an aside, but St. Francis, if you don't think St. Francis is a big deal, he's probably the most influential person in Western history since St. Paul. Probably. Like, anyway, that's another talk for another day. So St. Francis lives this life and continues to, as I said, gain, gain these brothers. Um, and he comes to, to the end of his life um, with, does anyone know how many followers he had by the end of his life? Over 5,000. Now, he, from the time of his conversion to the time he died, it was 20 years, right? So, that's about the lifetime of sort of the average lifetime of the people all in, the room, in this room right now. You know, he gained 5,000 followers. I think I heard something else about that within maybe like 20 years after his death or something like that, one third of the Italian peninsula were third order Franciscans. So, they were like lay people living this life of St. Francis, Right? That's astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. But that's, that's the life that he lived and that's how inspiring he was. It's basically St. Francis' life in a nutshell. I kind of just t- focused on the start of his life and then really skipped, like, skipped over most of the rest of his life. Uh, some other cool things that happened. He went to Egypt. That was pretty cool. And he crossed, this was during a war, by the way. Uh, he went to Egypt during the Crusades, crossed the enemy lines. That's kind of crazy. Um, got tortured by some, uh, some Muslim soldiers. Um, but the Sultan wasn't that bad. He thought St. Francis was pretty cool. Um, so he treated him pretty well, but he didn't convert, sadly. But nonetheless, St. Francis just really wanted to be a martyr at that stage of his life. He, he just wanted to go out there and be a martyr. And what's the best way to be a martyr? go to the Crusades and walk across the enemy lines. Pretty easy way to become a martyr. But God was saving him for something else. Um, he, was, he had other plans. So I guess one of the things that, that I wanted to talk about in looking at the life of St. Francis, um, a couple of things. I want to skip over a couple of things very, very quickly. Um, but one of them is, um, well, there's three things that I want to sort of skip over quickly because we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, but I just want to sort of reinforce it because sometimes the life of St. Francis, we can sort of look at one aspect of his life and sort of separate it from everything else and say, well, this is St. Francis. You know, St. Francis was all about, you know, the birds and the animals and, and this kind of thing. He was like the first Greenpeace activist, you know. Or we can look at St. Francis and his work with the lepers and say, you know, St. Francis was the, the first social justice guy. Or we can look at St. Francis and his, his desire to, to follow the church 
um, and say St. Francis, no, St. Francis was a traditionalist. You know, we can do all of these things, um, but they sort of don't really tell us who St. Francis is. Prayer is obviously the first one. Uh, St. Francis was a man of prayer. By the end of his life, he, he was desiring contemplation so much that he would basically have his brothers who kind of knew his life and knew his lifestyle um, to kind of fend off anybody who was trying to disturb him from his prayer. Um, that doesn't mean that he was sort of closed in on himself. No, it just meant that he knew um, that God was calling him into this deeper and deeper relationship with him and he didn't want the things of the world to, to continue to disturb him. He was a man who followed the prayer of the church. This is something I didn't realize. Uh, when I was reading this gigantic book, I didn't read all of it, don't worry. Um, it's, it's pretty obvious, but I mean, this, is, this shows how little I really knew about St. Francis, is that he, he, pre- he was, firstly, he was a deacon. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned, he celebrated mass at the first nativity scene. Um, and that he continued to live the life of prayer of the church. He prayed the divine office. He prayed all the liturgy, the the hours of the lit- I don't know how you do that in plural but the lit- he prayed the whole liturgy of the hours there we go he was he was a man he was a man of deep prayer and I guess um, that's how he knew what to do in his life you know when when he went to um, when he you know went to well when his brothers went to Spain and he went off somewhere else and that kind of thing he wouldn't have known to turn around unless he was praying because the Holy Spirit can't well, yeah the Holy Spirit can do anything but it's really helpful if you pray when, when I was a kid, um, I used to sit in my room and play video games. All right, and my mum would come in and she'd tell me, oh, Luke, you know, I'm going off to the shops now. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, bye. I'd be playing my video games. I'd stop playing my video games. I'd say, oh, where'd mum go? <laughs> that's, that's, that sort of gives you an insight into why prayer is important. God can be talking to you. If you're like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. I'm just doing my work, da, 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 playing video games. Um, you're not going to be able to hear him. You know? And St. Francis, when he received that word, St. Francis, go and rebuild my church, which turns out was not simply literally rebuilding those churches, but rebuilding his entire church, which was falling into ruin. He was able to listen and to follow. You know? So, prayer. Church and the sacraments. Uh, there's only one Franciscan here, but anyone who sort of knows St. Francis, um, the admonitions... Is that how you pronounce it? Anyway, the admonitions of St. Francis. What's the first one? He's got like 20 or something like that. What's the first one that he mentions? I would have thought it would be something like be poor. You know, make sure that you keep poverty. Make sure that, you know, you don't go uh, getting money and things like that. He was concerned about these kinds of things. What was the first one that he mentioned? It was about the Eucharist. It was about Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And telling his brothers, you've got to believe. You know, if you don't believe, then you've got nothing. That was number one on his list. He then goes on to talk about poverty and virtue and all these things. But number one was about the Eucharist. He was a man who loved the sacraments. His friars, even when there was a priest who had a bad name, they'd still go to confession with him. Even though everyone else is like, no way am I going to this priest they'd still go to confession with him, with, with that priest. And St. Francis loved priests because they were the ones who gave the Eucharist. You know, that's not to say that St. Francis was saying, okay, you know, priests can get away with anything. You know, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that because of his deep love for God and for Jesus Christ and the gift that he has given through the Eucharist, you know, I've got to go to confession. I've got to go to a priest. You know, like, I've got to, to, to respect Jesus Christ in that person, that doesn't mean letting them get away with anything. What it does mean, though, is that, that we recognize that Jesus Christ is so humble that he gives himself through the priest. And he was respectful of the church. St. Francis wasn't the first poor guy running around Europe uh, telling people they've got to be poor. Plenty others doing that. There are a lot of heretics amongst them. Um, the difference was that St. Francis was a man of prayer, and St. Francis was a man of the church. Um, plenty of them went into, off into wacky... If, you've, if you ever read about the medieval heretics, like sort of leading up to St. Francis, they're nuts. They're pretty crazy. They start out all right. It's like, yeah, be poor, the clergy are too rich, you know, this kind of thing. And they start saying crazy things like, oh, we can't really... Um, what is it like? Well, baptism doesn't count, but, 
you, you can do this thing just before you die and it makes you perfect or something. Like, they've got this wacky sacramental theology and they start saying that, you know, that you can hug one another and it's not... Uh, sorry, James, sorry, James. Um, hugging's okay, don't worry. But, like, you know, anyway, I'm not going to go into it, but they're really weird. Um, because that's what happens, is that if we disconnect ourselves from the church and sacraments and prayer and we start trying to think that, that we too can be Jesus and sticking it to the Pharisees... You know, we're going to go off into all sorts of wacky directions. And St. Francis didn't do that. You know, yes, he was an example. Yes, he was a man who, who really was an example to, to the church at the time, which was quite worldly. But he was a man who did, and again, it goes back to, he loved Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus Christ founded the church and that he wasn't going to abandon it. I said I was going to do this quickly. I better hurry up. <laughs> So, uh, the church and sacraments. St. Francis was a man of the church and of the sacraments. And finally, he was a man of evangelization. Um, Simon talked about this the other night, that, um, that there's this quote that goes around. And I apologize to anyone who's done it. I don't remember anyone saying it. I'm not judging you. Don't worry. Um, but there's this quote that, that was going around um, that's, uh, that's attributed to St. Francis that's, um, preach the gospel at all times and where necessary, use words. Well, if you read the life of St. Francis you realize that St. Francis must have thought that using words was really necessary because he did it a lot. He, ne- he never actually said that. Again, it probably goes back to ecclesial law stuff that's too complicated to go into right now. But he never actually said that. He was a man of preaching. He was a man of evangelization. He went out. There's so much in his, in his life that talks about him going out and he preached the birds. Like, he preached everyone. You know, like, <laughs> he liked to talk about his faith um, and about Jesus and about how he can save us. And so he was a man of evangelization because that's what he was called to do. And although um, prayer was at the center of his life, he wasn't constantly working, working, working. He realized that when God was calling him to go out there and speak, to go out there and evangelize, he wasn't simply being an example. You know, he was being a preacher. He was calling people on. Just to get an idea, what for, for the people here who already know St. Francis, or maybe I explained it well enough um, that you sort of get an idea now, but what's probably the most striking thing about St. Francis. Radicalness, yeah? I'll come back to that. I'll put that on the shelf. Archbishop Julian did that shelf. (laughs) His love of poverty. Yeah, his love of poverty. Um, That was actually the answer I wanted, so sorry everyone else who had all the other questions. What what were you going to say, Jess? Yeah. Yeah, that's really striking as well. But it's not what I was going to talk about, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> His hair. His hair. Poor St. Francis. Um, poverty. Now, I've sort of been... Uh, I've been involved in my faith for about the last seven years, or I mean properly... Um, taking my faith seriously for about the last seven years now. So I've gone to a lot of talks and heard a lot of talks because I work at Cradio and, and all this kind of thing. Does any, do any of you know, well, the religious here would obviously know, but the evangelical councils, can anyone name them for me? Chastity, poverty, and obedience. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. These are the even And charity, that's the sisters. <laughs> um Poverty, chastity, and obedience. So evangelical councils, they're the, um, I guess, the precepts of the gospel, the, the things that the gospel tell us, um, you know, that, that we should, that's really helpful for our lives. And so re- a lot of religious, most religious orders, I think, I don't know, um, take on these as vows. Um, so the sisters, for example, and Brother Joseph um, take on these vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But they're not just for religious. I mean, I don't take them as vows and lay people don't take them as vows, but they're not just something that's like, that's what the religious do and we go and we drink lots and tell everyone to be rebellious or whatever. Um, no, we, we as Christians have to do them as well because they're evangelical. They're part of the gospel. We have to follow the gospel you know, as Christians. It's not just for the religious and the priests. But, but in my time, I, something I've noticed is that, you know, in the church in the 21st century, we, this is a good thing. Please don't get me wrong. Um, we talk a lot about chastity, which is awesome. We have Simon and Maddie here. You know, they talk about chastity. This is really good because it's like the most obvious way that, that our faith and, and Christ is being attacked 
and the dignity of the human person is being attacked today is in the area of chastity. We talk about obedience, you know, sadly, um, the church has always experienced this, but sadly in the last, you know, several decades, there's been a lot of rebelliousness in the church. Um, And so there's been this calling on, and I mean, I know in myself, and there's probably a lot of people here who grew up and didn't really learn what the church taught about things. Um, And so we have a great zeal for, you know, obedience to the church because we're often left hanging out to dry um, until finally God dragged us into the church and said, please trust it, please trust her. Um, And we realized what a gift that is. But we don't talk a lot about poverty. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that. We don't talk a lot about poverty in the church. Maybe, maybe, I mean, we've got Pope Francis now. He talks a lot, you know, which is great uh, about poverty. But just in general, something I've noticed is that, you know, while we do really focus on, this is good, on chastity and obedience, we don't really talk a lot about poverty. But I would say that poverty is just as, if not more important, well, actually, no, that's not correct, just as important as, as obedience and chastity. So I really call you on to, to embrace a kind of spirit of poverty. It's something that for Westerners is really hard because we live in a capitalist world where, you know, what's the goal of my life? Get a good job, security for my family, retire, get in a Winnebago and drive around Australia. So poverty is really against the grain in our world today and not just, you know, in particular areas. It's against the grain across the board, from the time that you're small all the way up to your old. Um, So I want to talk, firstly, about material poverty. Um, That's scary, because poverty is a difficult word. I mean, obedience and chastity, although they sort of have this, like, yuck sort of sound to it in the culture, poverty is actually a word that it's like, you know, the, the human... I'm forgetting, Millennium Development Goals and whatever, it's like reduce poverty, you know. Uh, When you look at a country's uh, statistics, it's like, what's their poverty statistics? It's all bad. Like, who wants to have good, like, high poverty statistics? Nobody, you know. So, the word poverty has a really bad uh, attachment to it. But in terms of the way that St. Francis lived it, it's about giving up, and Father Michael talked about this the other day, actually, in, in, in a certain way, of giving up those things that don't leave us to lead us to God. Why do we need them? You know, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of story relating to this, but um, a couple of years ago, um, it was Holy Thursday, I think, um, and I got this call um, from a good friend of mine, and she said, Luke, um, I need you to pray. Uh, we have the, uh, the, station, the, the live Stations of the Cross at Camperdown tomorrow. And I can see some people starting to laugh because they know where this is going. We've got the live Stations of the Cross tomorrow. And our person who's playing Jesus has had to pull out. Um, I need you to pray. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to pray. I said to them, have you thought about Tom? Um, Tom Yashak. And no, 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 no. He was, I mean, he's perfect. Come on, Tom. Like, look at him, you know. They said, no, 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 he was, he was last year and I don't think it's right, you know, I don't think, like, in my prayer, I, d- I don't think it's right that we have the same person continually because, like, let's face it, it would have been Tom every single year. Um, like, okay, okay, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, praying about it. Anyway, later that day, I get, a, I get another phone call. Anyway, I think there's a couple of phone calls about this. And finally, I'm on my way home on the train and I'm gonna get o- I think I'm going to get off the train and walk straight to the church to go to the Mass of the Lord's Supper. Just to give you an idea of how close this is to the Stations of the Cross. Um, The next day at 10 o'clock, I get a phone call and Jess says to me, I think you're meant to play Jesus. (laughs) With like 15 hours to go. (laughs) Anyway, so I'll, I'll come back to sort of a little bit more about that. But anyway, the next day comes and it's like, oh, by the way, I have to explain to my poor mum. Oh, you know how you're coming along to that thing tomorrow? going to be me, um, you know. <laughs> uh, and anyway, I, um, I hadn't actually tested out the cross. You know, it's the, they've got this big cross, right? It's hollow, by the way, just putting that out there. It's hollow. And I hadn't tested out this cross until, I, I don't think I had anyway, until I walked out there on, and on the second station, um, I pick up the cross and my knees are buckling. 
This thing is the heaviest thing I've lifted in my entire life. <laughs> and between the second and third station, oh man, that was really long. It was like probably like 100 meters or something, but it was painful. Like I didn't know if I was going to make it, like seriously. <laughs> It was hollow. Sorry, just an aside here, just putting it out there. It's a hollow cross, right? Now, I had turned up in my car and walked out and like casually walked up the stairs and, and they got me into the costume and dressed and all that kind of thing. And I casually walked down and then casually went up and picked up the cross. Jesus, he was whipped and scourged and put a crown of thorns and didn't get any sleep and probably hadn't eaten, you know, since the night before and all these kinds of things. And he had to pick up an actual cross that was actually like had all that weight in it. You know, and he had to carry that while being whipped and, and attacked and spat upon and abandoned and all these things up to Calvary. Puts my suffering into perspective. <laughs> but in a sense, the reason why I bring that up is because when, when I was um, thinking about, about this talk, um, this, this came up, this, this carrying the cross thing came up. Because Tom was talking about it, like this idea of, of the meaning of life, you know, and, and, and the importance of carrying our cross. Now, all I had was like this, this like white uh, tunic kind of thing. That was what you wore and, and the crown of thorns. Now, that was really hard to carry that cross. Now, can you imagine if I was carrying the cross in this, in what I'm wearing right now? If I was carrying the cross with like my phone in my pocket or like, you know, with, with my watch on or with like, you know, all this other stuff. Like if I was down here in Hobart in, at that time of year, it probably would have been with a jumper and a scarf and 30,000 layers and all this kind of stuff. It would have been really difficult. And that's because, by analogy, material wealth makes it more difficult for us to carry the cross. It does. St. Francis knew that. St. Francis knew that so well Brother Joseph, where's he go? I hope he's still here. See you. Come on up. This is how well St. Francis knew this, right? Come on down. Yeah. All right. I want you to stay facing this way, right? And I want you to put your hood up. Yep. And I want you to put your arms out. What does that look like? A cross. That was what St. Francis was thinking. That's why he made it's. I mean, there's probably arguments between the different Franciscans about what it's meant to look like, but on the whole, right, <laughs> this is the Capuchins. Um, on the whole, thank you, brother. That's what St. Francis was thinking. Like, seriously, that's actually what he was thinking. He made, the, the, he made his habit to be like a cross so that he could literally every day take up his cross and follow him. That's what St. Francis was thinking. That was the idea, you know, and that was all St. Francis wore. You know, that, was what he, that was what he walked in, that was what he, he travelled in, that's what he worked in, that's what he slept in. You know, he literally took up that cross and nothing else, except that cord, you know, and followed Jesus Christ. And that was material poverty. You know, he didn't have anything else. That was all he had, was just the clothes on his back, which was the cross of Jesus Christ, or his cross. And so I sort of just challenge you um, people and me, Luke, and as Father Stefan said, all you little people in there, um, I'm going to create you. Um, I challenge you to, to, I guess, embrace a sense of material poverty. You know, think about what Father Michael was saying the other day. What are those things in your life that don't lead you to God? And even what are those things in your life that, distracts you. Whenever you go to the doctor, right, um, from, from everything from, like, from a hernia to, to pneumonia, you know, one of the main questions that a doctor will ask you uh, is, are you smoking? And the reason why they ask you that is because usually smoking leads to most, like, it's probably going to degrade your health in some way, shape, or form, whatever your health condition is. This is going to be unpopular, and including to you little people in there. I'm going to suggest that, okay, it has its good, smoking doesn't, oh, anyway. People can argue about this and all this kind of thing, but something I'm going to suggest, and it's something that we do in the Immaculata community, I'm going to suggest that the smoking of the spiritual life in terms of material poverty is television. 
And I, I, I say that because, because it's one of the easy... The, the reason why they say that about smoking is because, like with the health and smoking is that if you give up smoking, your health is probably going to get better, right? Um, I, I will guarantee you that if you give up television, your prayer life will get better, your spiritual life will get better, everything will just get better. You know, after these 10 days, right, you'll go back and you'll probably, like, there's a morning TV show. Seriously, ask any of the long-term mission schools who've done long-term mission, or any mission schools have done this before. You go home and you switch on the TV and it's just, like, some morning TV show and they're talking about whatever the disaster of the day is, which is that some celebrity, you know, said a swear word or something like that. You know, and you're just like, what on earth? What is this? Blip, you know, kick it out. Off you go, what is my mother, you know. Honestly, I would say if, the, if you are looking for something in your life right now that you want to become more materially poor in, I would say it's give up television, and that includes Netflix. Um, sorry. <laughs> I don't think that, that St. Francis, if St. Francis was sitting around two hours a day binge-watching something, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. If the apostles were sitting around watching television two, three, four hours a day, they wouldn't have been able to convert the world. You know? And it sounds like, oh, why are you picking on television and not the internet and all these kinds of things? Well, it's because television is just the most really obvious one. When, when you think about it, I'm, I'm apologies. Please don't get offended by this. I used to be a chronic TV watcher. Don't worry. You know, when you think about it, when you watch TV, you sit there and you just do this. You're staring at, literally, you are staring at a light bulb or a series of light bulbs, depending on what your television is, flashing at you in the face at 30 frames a second. And that's what you're doing for several hours a day. When you could be doing this and looking at the Eucharist. So I just really, I just really encourage you in that area that if you are, please just look for things. It could be music. It could be, um, it could be clothes. You know, you don't have to go out and buy a new outfit every week, for example. You know, and I, I'm speaking to myself in this as well because I struggle with this. I struggle with, with material poverty. I like stuff. Everyone likes stuff, you know. But one of the best ways that, that we can embrace the poverty of St. Francis is to just look at, just start small. Start with something. I reckon if you, television, that's the first thing that you start with. Um, and if anyone has any questions about it, because there's a lot more that we could talk, talk about, it, please, you can talk to me about it afterwards. I, I encourage you. Because it's more, with more stuff, it's harder to take up the cross and live the meaning of our lives. The next thing. Poverty of circumstance. Now, a few years back... Um, this is, this is kind of funny. A couple, a couple of months ago, actually, we did a uh, fire retreat. And it was like the fire retreat of breakups. You know, every single person's testimony involved, I had a breakup. Um, <laughs> and it's a little bit like that here as well. Um, but hey, that's what life is like. Um, and so, so a, few, a few years ago, um, I, had a, um, I had a breakup uh, with, with a girlfriend. I was pretty hurt by it. Um, and... To cut a very long story short, yeah, it affected me quite a bit. And one of the things when, when I was praying about it, and I know I just told you, I know I just told you don't watch TV, but I'm about to reference a television show, so <laughs> apologies. Um, we, can, we can use things for good, but that doesn't mean you can watch TV just so you can use it in a talk. Don't do that. But there's this, um, on The Simpsons, which I watched way too much in my life. <laughs> on, on The Simpsons, there's this um, Homer goes in and he um, he puts his arm up a um, up a, a vending machine, right? And he goes to pull out the um, the, the can, right? And he, it gets stuck. And he's like, "Oh no, my arm's stuck!" And so then he goes and he he puts his I don't know why he does I forget why he does this. This is how long it's been since I've watched TV. Um, he goes and then puts his arm up a candy. I'm 
speaking American now, a chocolate bar machine um, and, and pulls his arm out and he gets stuck again. Like, oh no, I'm going to live the rest of my life like this, you know, with my arms stuck in these vending machines. Anyway, they bring in, they bring in the, the rescue team and, and they come in and they're, um, I bring this up because this is what actually came up in prayer, right? That's why I bring it up. Uh, sorry. And um, the, the rescue team are there and they're like, they're trying to figure it out and they say, Homer, are you still holding on to the can? Anyway, and he walks away like this. And the point is, is that his arms weren't stuck. He was just holding onto the can, which was stuck. If he just let go of the can, his arm could have come out of the vending machine. Right? And that was what I got in prayer. It was basically, Luke, are you still holding onto the can? You know, I was struggling so much with this, with this breakup. You know, and it was basically like, Luke... You know, you're, you can say, I guess, you can say all you like, you know, deliver me from this. I want to get better from this. But if you're going to hold, keep holding on to the can, there's nothing I can do. And that's what I mean by poverty of circumstance, is embracing the circumstance that you're in, not holding on to a grudge, not holding on to an unforgiveness, not holding on to, oh, what, you know, what, why, why am I going through what I'm going through now? If only things were better. I think it was Father Michael again. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get done for plagiarism in a second. I keep referencing Father Michael too many times. Um, he was saying today about God being a God of reality and being a God of, you know, deal with the thing that you're dealing with right now. And although he was talking about it, I guess, in the future, it can also be about the past as well, you know, that, and, and the present, you know, that, that we, can, we can say, oh, I wish things were different. You know, God, help me. To make, thing, to make sure that things are different. But sometimes that's not what's best for us. You know, we have to embrace in the same way that we, that we embrace a spirit of material poverty, we can also embrace a spirit of immaterial poverty in a poverty of circumstance. There could be something, and I'm sorry, I'm not saying, you know, if there's a grave injustice in your life, don't do anything about it. Definitely. God is a God of justice, you know. But... If there's something in your life that's really eating you up, that's making it really difficult for you to do something, maybe it's, I can't go on the long-term mission school because I've got a job. Same story as so many other people so far and ask them how that went. God will probably get you fired from that job or something. Um, <laughs> but to, to, to embrace that circumstance and to really ask God, you know, what, what do you want from me? The reason why I'm talking about poverty so much is because... When we're poor, we're able to be empty. You know, God wants to give us his love. He wants to fill us up with his love. He wants to work with our lives. But if we're holding on to heaps of stuff, he respects our freedom. You know, there's, there's no room for him <laughs> to go into there if we're just continually holding on to stuff, whether that be material goods or resentment um, and disgust at, at our situation. I could go on, but I won't. So poverty. St. So Francis really did embrace that, that poverty, both material and, and circumstantial poverty. I'm sure he probably would have, would have wanted to love to have his father back, but it never happened. You know, his, da- his dad disowned him. He couldn't dwell on it. He just had to move on and do what God wanted him to do. There were plenty of times that he wanted to go and get martyred he went off to Spain and wanted to go to Morocco. And then it says that, that God, um, what was it? It's, oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. He got really ill. And he's like, okay. So he turned around and, and went home. And then he got on a boat and he um, got in the boat. And the boat, the boat was going to go to like Alexandria or something like that, uh, where he was going to go and do the thing that, he talk, that I talked about, going to the the Muslim soldiers there and all that kind of stuff. So he gets in the boat and the wind goes all crazy and he ends up in Croatia. Now, if anyone knows where Croatia is relative to Italy, he didn't get very far. He just went like that, you know, compared to like that to get to, to Egypt. Now, he didn't give up on that journey, but he didn't, he wasn't like, oh no, he, he wasn't, sorry. He wasn't saying, you know, he wasn't defeatist about it, but at the same time, he wasn't, um, resentful about it either. He was completely committed to God's will and what God wanted from him. And that's what poverty is about. You know, it's about saying, Lord, I'm empty. You know, do with me what you will. Joy. St. Francis was joyful. 
He was a joyful guy. One of the longest writings that we have from him. Well, it's the canticle of all creatures. And that's a song of joyful praise to God the Father. Pope Francis references it. Laudato Si is the first two words of this canticle of all creatures. You know, and it's this, this, um, this work of, of joy. Um, you know, that, w- that was the kind of person he was. You know, outbreaking into song. He wanted to go preach to the birds and, and all this kind of thing. Not in like a flowery way. That was, he was in love with God. And when you're in love with someone, you want to tell the whole world about it. So that's, what, that's the kind of person that he was. There's this story about him um, on his journey to Morocco to go get martyred, uh, one of his brothers um, went with him and he kept on running off ahead, you know, because he wanted to get there really, really quickly. Um, And the brother (laughs) apparently reports this, I guess. But that's the kind of person that he was. It's a very childlike thing to do. You know, who else is going to run off ahead of someone else when you're, you know, when you're on a journey somewhere else? Like, it's a bit strange, isn't it? But he was filled with joy. And joy is not a kind of smiley face you know, like, ah, I'm dying inside, but I'm just going to put on a smiley face kind of thing. Joy is about peace. It's about an authentic peace in our hearts. That comes from that poverty. You know, it comes from knowing that God is in control. It comes from knowing that God is my father. Love. So, I've had poverty, uh, joy, and love. Now, poverty is all well and good, you know, but any stoic can do poverty. You know, Buddhist monks do poverty. You know, just about anyone worth their salt in the spiritual life does poverty, whether they're Christian or not. But poverty for St. Francis and for the Christian is about making us, I, I sort of said this before, but about making ourselves empty to receive God's love and to give love to God. Where's Michael Damati? Is he still here? Yeah, if you can stand up for a second, there's my man, St. Thomas Aquinas, has this quote on the back. You can spin around for us. Love is willing the good of the other. That's what love is. It's willing the good of the other. Thanks, Michael. Um, And so when we embrace that that poverty that St. Francis had, that poverty is meant to then direct us towards love. You know, it makes us completely empty of ourselves so that we can love others. If we're full of ourselves, as they say, you know, we can't love others. We can't love God. We can't let God work love in us because we're too full. But because St. Francis was empty, because St. Francis knew that everything else was bleep, because that's what St. Paul says literally in English, I'm not going to say it for Cradio, other than than Jesus Christ. If all other things are done except knowing Jesus Christ, you know, then we've got to get rid of everything else. And that doesn't mean we cut off all our friends and go into a bunker and and maybe for some of us we're meant to join the Carmelites, I don't know. But, um, you know, it's about loving God. It's about, God, what do you want me to do? You know, how can I love you? How can you love me? You know, that's where this poverty is meant to take us. And that's what St. Francis did. He loved so much. You know, he used to be disgusted with lepers. Aldrin talked about that up on the video there before. You know, that, that St. Francis was disgusted with lepers. He used to walk two miles. If he saw a leper off in the distance, he'd walk two miles. Two miles is a long way. He'd walk two miles around the leper so that he didn't have to smell him. And I think he still put his, put his fingers over his, his nose. After his conversion, he embraces a leper. He embraces the leper. You know, that's St. Francis. That's Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. James talked about love on lakes. You know, St. John Paul II and, and that Jesuit priest who, who was in the Japanese POW camps. You know, that's what St. Francis was as well because they were empty and they allowed God to love them and for that love to then spread to others. So going back to Jess's, uh, not Jess's answer, I think it was Simon's answer before, about what's the most striking thing about St. Francis, it's this radicality. Now, St. Francis, when you read his life, some of the things that he does are a bit strange. One of the things that he does is um, he, he gathers up all the, um, all the writings that he finds on the road. Now, there was no 
printers back then. There's no newspapers. There's nothing like that. Like it was pretty hard to write things back then. So there's a lot less writings around. But if you found one on the ground, and especially if you found one with the name of Jesus or the or the Lord or something like that on it, he would gather it up uh, and make sure it's in a secure place. And it was even in his test. It was in his testament or his rule or something like that that the Franciscans should do that. That's a bit strange, isn't it? You know, the reason why he did that is because he said that, you know, it's out of, um, you know, that he didn't want the Lord's name and the letters that make up the Lord's name to be profaned. You know, um, he, like I said, he preached to birds. He loved lambs so much because they reminded him of Jesus Christ that when he saw a man coming along with two lambs sort of tied up, sorry, Jess and Naomi, when he saw two lambs, they're, they're, they're from a, a wheat and sheep farm, uh, two lambs walking, uh, with a man with two lambs walking up to a market, he's like, I'll buy them off you. Don't let them be killed, you know? And, like, he loved the lambs so much. Like, these things are a little bit strange, you know, that St. Francis did. But aside from that, even just his poverty, you know, we would say is a little bit strange. He, he gave up. To the world, it's super weird. He had this awesome setup to be basically a merchant like his dad and be set for the rest of his life. And what did he do? He gave it all up and took up a sack and, and lived the rest of his life out in the marshes. You know, we, we look at Assisi today um, and that area. And it all looks very good. And you can imagine Aragon riding on the horse and all this kind of thing. Um, but back in his days... That area where, uh, if you've been to Assisi, Our Lady of the Angels, where the Portincular is, was marshland. It was malaria central. Like, it wasn't good. It was not a good place to be. That's why all the leper colonies were down there. You know, St. Francis was radical. He was a radical Christian. He was in love with Jesus Christ and he just wanted to express it in these radical ways. I'm going to read to you a quote that Jess was very enthusiastic about earlier last year, and um, it's really good. Who's it by, Jess? Thomas Dubay. Dubai. And it's on apostolic credibility, and it's from a book on poverty, funnily enough. Happy Are You Poor. It's about lay people in poverty. There you go. So if you'd like to know more, read that book. Or talk to Jess. Jess will just give you the summary. All right. Apostolic credibility. So we're talking about radic- radicality, radicalness. St. Francis, he's, he's radical. To be credible in our modern age, a person must visibly demonstrate personal integrity in all the, de- the small details of everyday life. Eminent politicians are not assumed to be authentic simply because they can give a rousingly good speech. One may be able to fool some of the people some of the time, but I doubt that mere words have ever moved the masses for long. In this day and age of mass media, our daily deluge of words has further cheapened the value of mere talk. If we wonder why, despite millions of us who follow Christ, so not just the hundred or so in the room, millions, the world has not long ago been converted. You know, why hasn't everyone been converted yet? There's millions of us, surely. We need to not look far for one solution. We are not perceived as men on fire. We look too much like everyone else. We appear to be compromisers, people who say they believe in everlasting life, but actually live as though this life is the only one we have. A small band of men with deep convictions, burning convictions, went out into the first century and converted the then-known world By the 4th century, that world had been largely transformed. Let me say that again. If we wonder why, despite the millions of us who follow Christ, the world has not long ago been converted, we need not look far for one solution. We are not perceived as men on fire. We look too much like everyone else. We appear to be compromisers, people who say that they believe in everlasting life, but actually live this life as though... Sorry, but actually live as though this life is the only one we have. A small band of men with deep convictions, burning convictions, went out into the first century and converted the then-known world. By the fourth century, that world had been largely transformed. In the 13th century, a small band of men also went out and converted the then-known world, as we say, you know, in, well, there's more than that, but <laughs> less than that, rather. Um, you know, that within something like, as I said, something like 20 years of his life, a third 
of Italy, of the Italian peninsula, there's a lot of people in the medieval times as well, uh, I guess, um, were third order Franciscans. They were hardcore Christians. They were radical Christians. We live in a world that really needs radical Christians right now. We really, really need radical Christians. We live in a world where, you know, and I don't know where you stand on this, so please don't take this the wrong way, but we live in a world where the, um, the Yes campaign guy on, the, on same-sex marriage from, from Ireland basically said, well, most of the Catholics voted for same-sex marriage anyway, so get over it, Catholic Church, you need to change. You know, we live in a world where when you look at the statistics in the United States, um, when they're bringing in uh, a contraception mandate, they're saying, well, 98% of Catholics use contraception anyway. What's your deal, church? Get with the program. When we live in a world where basically, you know, no one wants to proclaim the gospel, no one wants, there's people out there, as we've talked about, there's people out there who are starving, who are thirsting for Jesus Christ. You might have been one of them a couple of days ago. This world badly needs radical Christians. If I can get the people at the back there to wind up those windows there, there's a quote on there from St. John Paul II, you know, in the last 30 years. Do not be afraid to be the saints of the new millennium. That's what we need. That's what this world needs. This world badly needs it right now. You know, St. Francis, it wasn't straight away. You know, he was a bit dumb, like all of us, you know, and didn't quite get it straight away. You know, but slowly God took him deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, but what he did was he said, yes, God, to the thing that he was presenting to him at that moment. You know, and that's what we need. You know, James said, was it last night or or yesterday, that, you know, there are people in this room who could be canonized, who will be canonized. That's what he said, you know. And it's not just about being canonized, it's about being saints. Who wants to be in heaven? Everyone wants to be in heaven. I don't want to be in hell. Who wants to be there? You know, I want to be in heaven, you know. And I want everyone out there to be in heaven as well. And the way that we do that is by being radical Christians. So don't be afraid. You know, that's what this world needs. They might not know it. They might really want us to all just iscot, you know. Actually, does anyone have a mission school flyer here? There was only 10,000 of them. Surely we have one here. Here we go. Here we go. Now, I wasn't actually here for the design process of this, but I'm presuming this is what they meant. Now, you notice on the back there, right, on the being a disciples of Jesus thing, there's pictures of St. Maximilian Colby with his epic beard and St. Teresa of Lisieux, really cute as like a five-year-old and that kind of thing. And St. John Paul II in a shirt and uh, looking very handsome. But there's also pictures of you guys. Not you, sorry. Maybe next year. Um, But there's pictures of all you guys on there as well. Why is that? It's because you're called to be saints. That's what you're called to. That's what we need. That's what this world needs. That's what you need. St. Francis, I would say, you know, and in reading about him, I would say St. Francis is a particularly good saint for this time because St. Francis, you know, each of the saints have their own particular... Okay, St. Joseph's... I'm just going to ignore St. Joseph for the moment because he's actually probably better than this. But each of the, each of the saints have their own particular um, area which, which, you know, we can look to and, and say is really inspiring. You know, St. Francis is interesting because I think St. Francis, after Christ himself because he conformed himself to Christ, I think pretty much every single person on this planet can look to St. Francis and say, I can be a better Christian by doing this thing that St. Francis did. I think he's probably one of the only saints out there that's like that. You know, all the saints are so different, yet St. Francis, I think, gives us a model of sainthood that pretty much everyone can relate to, whether they're in a coma in a hospital or whether they're running a, a company. So I commend St. Francis to you and I commend to you this idea of being a radical Christian. When you go home, you've got to be radical because this world has had lukewarm Christianity for far too long and it ain't working. It ain't working. You know, the 12th century also had 
lukewarm Christianity, I guess. You know, that's why we had all those crazy heretics running around, because there had to be something. You know, and St. Francis changed that. Why not you? Why not me? Amen. That was Luke Strier with St. Francis of Assisi and Spiritual Poverty. This presentation was part of the 2018 Immaculata Mission School held in Hobart, Tasmania on the theme, Being a Disciple of Jesus. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit creatio.org.au.